Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the backside of your message notes. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Janice. If you can tell I sound a little bit raspy today, yes, I picked up a cold yesterday. So if I don't give lots of hugs and handshakes after the service today, it's not because I don't like you. It's because I do. <laughs> so... And if I forget, you just say, don't touch, you know? Yeah, very good. <clears throat> well, the words which Janice just read for you are among the most famous in all of the scriptures. They open the most famous section of all of the scriptures. These beatitudes are at the very front of what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were here last week, you know how beautiful and moving it was when our friend Doug uh, reenacted the entire Sermon on the Mount last week. What a beautiful, did, wasn't that great last week? That was just fantastic. All of those verses you've heard and didn't know they were all in the Sermon on the Mount. And as Doug shared them with you, it's such a beautiful blessing for, uh, for us. Uh, the, the, to me, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Yosemite. You ever been to Yosemite? And I remember reading a long time ago that the Indians had said that, I don't know if this is just legendary or true, that when the Great Spirit was creating uh, the world, he got to the end of, uh, end of the ocean, and he, he still has good stuff to put in, so he threw it all into Yosemite <laughs> to make it look so pretty. And it's like that. There's, there's beautiful sights everywhere you turn in the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Beatitudes, which Janice just read for you. We have the statement, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the golden rule, the Lord's Prayer, the wide and narrow gate. All these famous sections of the Bible are found in these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The statements in the Sermon on the Mount are so familiar that it's easy to overlook their revolutionary character, both in Jesus' day and in our own day. But this morning and for the next couple of months, we're going to take a more careful look at this sermon. What is it all about? 
Why did Jesus begin his ministry with this fantastic sermon? Why did Matthew put it at the very front of its, his gospel? How does it fit in the story of Matthew and the story of the New Testament and the story of the Bible and indeed the whole story of the whole world? So let's take a look, take a look at this very carefully, very uh, simply today, look at the, the setting of the Sermon on the Mount and the blessings of the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, the setting of this sermon. We got to realize that this doesn't sit here separately from its context. There's a context going on here. And if you remember, as we set up the Sermon on the Mount last week, I had Suzanne read for you from chapter 4 and following. And I, I think it's important for us to see that when Jesus began his ministry in the 23rd verse of chapter 4, he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Jesus came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He came telling the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's what was going on here um, in this story, is that that Matthew is letting us know that Jesus is the world's true king. He is the one who is really in charge of this whole world. He is the one who has come to reclaim the kingdom of God for himself. We see the kingdom of God as part of the whole Bible story in that initially God had created this world and put his image in the middle of this world, his human beings as the image of God called to tend this world for for the glory of God and for the flourishing of all of creation. But humanity decided they wanted to run this world in their own terms. So we don't have the kingdom of God so much as we have the kingdom of man on this world. And in many ways, though, the whole Bible story is an effort to show how God is trying to reclaim his kingdom. That what has happened is humanity has turned the world upside down. I remember reading some time ago about a pilot in uh, in Tucson, a, a fighter pilot in Tucson, who who got con- sorry, I'm, I'm, my cord is wrapped around the cross. That's probably not a bad thing, but um, there we go. And I may want to wander a little bit. And uh, uh, Officer Amy Svoboda got vertigo or got turned around, and she was flying upside down, as can quickly happen. Those of you pilots would know what I'm talking about. Spatial disorientation, they call it. And she actually went flying 400 miles down, right into the ground, flying upside down without knowing it. Bible teaches us that we, in the way we have developed this world, are actually flying upside down. We don't know it. He wants to turn the world upside right. That's why the Beatitudes begin with a very different statement about the world is meant to be like. So God called Abraham, and God made a people out of Abraham, and ultimately those people who were called to bring rescue and renewal to the world were themselves in need, in need of rescue. And so ultimately God came to live in this world in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the rightful king of this world, to restore right side up our upside down world. And so Jesus comes in order to bring about the kingdom of God on this world. That's the context of the, of the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's not an independent set of, set of ethics. It's a description of what the kingdom of God is like and who is welcome and how, what, how they are to behave within that kingdom. That's what's going on in the, in, in the, in the, in, in the, the Sermon on the Mount. 
I can't help but think of the, one of my favorite sets of books called The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many of you have ever heard of that book? Yeah. Uh, fantastic, written by C.S. Lewis. And in that first book, we have the white witch who calls herself the queen of Narnia. She has actually usurped the land and made it a place where it is always winter and never Christmas. And the whole adventure of this is how that Aslan, the rightful king, comes back in and begins to reclaim his rightful rule over Narnia and put his human beings, the four children, in charge to manage Narnia for the sake of, you know, the good, you know, the, em- the emphasis on God. So there's so much parallel in that story to what's going on. That God had wanted for humans to manage this world for the sake of the kingdom of God, but it's been turned around. The world has a, uh, has a, the white, the, 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 the white witch, the queen of Narnia, who's turned it upside down, and Narnia comes to re, uh, excuse me, Aslan comes to re, uh, bring the story back towards, put it back on track to turn it upside right. And so all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, we have reference to the kingdom of God. Notice, for example, um, at the very beginning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, whoever does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse, uh, and verse 10, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew six thirty three. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And the sermon closes with a strong statement as well. Whoever hears, not everyone who calls to me Lord and Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those only who do my Father's will will be in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is describing what his kingdom is all about. So let's take a look at the king and, uh, and his kingdom. We see he comes and he talks to, he talks to, the, the, he says, sits on the, on, the, uh, on the mountain and he begins to talk to them about the kingdom. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Who are his disciples? Well, so far we've only heard about four, James and John, Peter and Andrew. He hasn't called all 12 until about the 10th chapter in this. But we see that while Jesus is opening his ministry in this verses preceding this text, it says to, it says to us, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from all the Jordan. Who are these people that he's speaking to? He's speaking to people who were sick and now have been made well. He's people speaking to people who were demon possessed and now have been set free. He's, look, he's speaking to people that are on the outcast outside of society out there. Say hi to McGee. That's McGee when he goes by in his tractor every day. Um, the, uh, he waves at me when he goes, so I like to wave back at him every so often. Um, the, uh, 
not many churches, you get the preacher waving to a tractor pole on the outside, but there you go. Um, and uh, so um, all these people, these are not the elite of society. These are not the up and up-and-coming people. These are the downcast, the, the oppressed. These are the people that Jesus has called. These are not exactly the cream of the crop. And notice what he says when he offers to them the blessings of the kingdom. He says, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now these beatitudes are so widely talked about and so widely misunderstood, really. And to me, they are not very easy to figure out exactly what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is speaking about is a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom where blessing comes to those who didn't know they were being blessed, who weren't aware that they were. And he's not telling us that we need to become poor in spirit. That's a misnomer about this. You will be blessed if you become poor in spirit. You'll be blessed if you mourn. That's not what it's saying. It's simply making a statement. Welcome, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now notice what it says here that there's a statement of blessing and a promised result in each case, and that the first and the last blessing basically give the same result. In the first blessing, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that the first, that those two blessings speak about a current reality. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. But all the interval blessings speak about a future reality. For, their, for they shall be comforted. For they shall inherit the earth. For they shall be satisfied. For they shall receive mercy. Blessings on the poor in spirit. Blessings on those who mourn. And I think that's the best way to translate it. One version I read said it this way. Blessings on the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessings on the mourners. You're going to be comforted. Blessings on the meek. You're going to inherit the earth. Blessings on the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're going to be satisfied. Blessings on the merciful. You'll receive mercy yourselves. Blessings on the pure in heart for you will see God. Blessings on the peacemakers. You'll be called God's children. Blessings on the people who are persecuted because of God's way. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. What are we supposed to make of these blessings? Blessed are those who are not typically thought of as being blessed. What, are we to, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be those who mourn, those who meek, and they shall inherit the earth? What, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to show mercy. What does it mean to do all those things? I think especially this first one, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand their spiritual 
poverty. Understand that you are spiritually bankrupt. That's in many ways the hardest message of the gospel. It's like the first step of the 12 steps. We admitted that we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. It's hard to admit that you're bankrupt. It's hard to admit that you're stuck. So Jesus says, blessed are those of you who know you are poor in spirit. That's why I like that song we did earlier. I'm going to sit at the welcome table. I'm going to sit at the welcome table. There's always a welcome sign. The only people who are not welcome inside the kingdom of God are those who are too proud to come in. Those are the only ones. But as we come, whoever we are, wherever we are, we now know that we receive the blessing of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a future tense to all of the other ones. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus talking about an upside-down kingdom. We have a world which seeks not to mourn, to seek our satisfaction, who seeks our power. We have a, mourn, we have a world which, uh, which takes advantage of people, and many people are taken advantage of, and yet we find out that God in his blessing opens up the kingdom to all of us. All who are willing may come in. And it seems to me that ultimately Jesus is the perfect example of these qualities. Jesus is the perfect one who exemplified all of these qualities. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does the Bible say? Jesus, yet for, though he was, uh, yet for our sakes, he became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. I think this, these Beatitudes are painting a beautiful mosaic picture of all these things. and They all bring to us the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus became poor for us. Jesus mourned over the prospects of death. Jesus wept in John eleven thirty five. 35. Blessed are the meek. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly, and you shall find rest to your souls, for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Jesus himself is among the meek and the lowly. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus was the one who came to bring all righteousness. And when Jesus was hanging from the cross, what did he say? But I thirst. I thirst. Jesus was the one who exhibited mercy, who was pure in heart. Jesus was the one who came to make peace for all the world. And in so doing, he was persecuted and even hung a tree. The Beatitudes make a beautiful mosaic, a composite picture of it is clear that Jesus himself is the one who is a perfect example of what it means to live the blessed way in the kingdom of God. So I think we want to say we want to be spiritually bankrupt before others, before God. We want to mourn for our, our sin and our weaknessness. We want, to be, we want to be able to say, I know that I need your strength in my life and a hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Yes, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Narnia was under the control of the white witch who was the queen of Narnia. And if you follow that story together, you remember that there were four children who came in, but there was one who had given himself to the white witch and at first thought she was the one. He wanted the power that she was going to bring to him. 
And so when Aslan finally did come in, what was it that happened? But the white witch said, I can keep Edmund for myself. He belongs to me. And Aslan had a private conversation with the white witch and came back very sad. Nobody knew what was going on. But later that night, what did Aslan do in that story? But Aslan walked and two girls, Lucy and Susan, followed him from a distance and saw when Aslan, because of the great deeper magic of self-sacrifice, he gave his life for the sake of Edmund, who had been given over to the white, uh, the, 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 the wicked, uh, the white witch. And he actually died under the weight of that evil in that beautiful story. And Lucy and Susan wept as they watched it from a distance and slept over his dead body overnight when ultimately in the morning we noticed that if you watched that movie or read that book, the stone table was broken and Aslan was re resurrected from the dead and a great victory happened. You see, Jesus came to bring new life to this upside-down, broken-down world. In the midst of that, he was not uh, coming and conquering with battle cry and with uh, the swords and guns. In fact, if you read this Sermon on the Mount, you find it's very different from that. What he came was to come and pour in spirit and in mourning and in, in meekness and in hungering thirst and actually being persecuted for the sake of righteousness because he sought to bring peace. But how did he bring peace? The Bible tells us he brought peace to us by hanging on a cross. So that beautiful children's story perfectly exemplifies the truth of what this Sermon on the Mount is trying to teach us, that Jesus has come to restore the world to its rightful purpose. And what began to happen then in that story is springtime began to come back to Narnia again. They were no longer in Christmas, uh, in, in wintertime with no Christmas. Father Christmas even had come in that little children's story. And springtime had come and new life began. And for many, many years now, those children in that, in that fantasy world lived as kings and queens over Narnia until they finally returned to uh, Great Britain and found that in British time, no time had passed and they were still the same children. But it's a beautiful story about what it means, that what it cost the king to bring to us new life. And his purpose was to make a new kind of people to bring renewal and restoration to this world. And so as we begin this Sermon on the Mount, we can't help but begin to ask ourselves, what does it take for me to be part of that kingdom of God? Am I willing to be poor in spirit, to be mourning over my own sin, to be able to be meek and to know how much I need a Savior and to hunger and thirst for righteousness and believe that it was God who gave that to me by the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, so that I then can become a merciful person because I have received mercy, I offer it to others. I become a pure in heart person who, who begins to really see God in my life. I become a person who's willing to stand at the place of pain and bring peace to a world broken by division in every fashion, way, any imaginable way that you can think about it, knowing that even becoming a priest maker can cause me to become part of the persecuted as well as the world reacts against me. But knowing that as I give my life for the sake of this world, I too am able to participate in the renewal project of what God is doing. Yes, Jesus came and he brought a revolutionary message to those people. He was talking about a whole new way to be human, a way that turned everything upside right, turned everything 
uh, in the right way. You know, they teach these pilots how to avoid crashing into the ground when they get disoriented. They have to learn to trust their instruments. Their instruments tell them exactly what the truth is, but their brains lose all sense of or orientation, and they, they instinctively can go the wrong way until they learn not to trust their instincts, but to trust their instruments. In the same way, you and I have been crashing and burning way too often in our lives, haven't we? we because it just seems like that's their way. We're like, oh, we know what the instruments tell us, but we're quite sure that we can see the landscape around us, and we think we're going this way, this way, when in fact we're going this way. And so we need to learn how to, how to recognize our spiritual poverty how to mourn over our weaknesses and to trust in the God who gave himself for us and be willing to trust him in his work in our lives. That's what it means to learn how to live the Jesus way. And this is simply the opening salvo of the most famous sermon in all of history where Jesus says, blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you find yourself looking at your past crashing and burning thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I'm on the outside looking in. There's a welcome for you. There's an invitation for all of us. But if you find yourself trusting in your own efforts, your own instincts, I can figure this out, then you're towards crashing and burning. I encourage you, trust the God who made you, who came to live among us, who gave his life for you. Trust him because his way is always the best way. Let's have prayer while we close our time together. Lord Jesus Christ, I want to just thank you that you are so willing to be with us, so willing to give your life for us, to teach us a new, new way to be human. I pray that you'd help us to be able to forego our instincts and instead trust in the instruments so that we don't go crashing and burning or hurting other people by the way we go about living our lives. Thank you that you have been willing, <clears throat> thank you that you have been willing to welcome all of us. Help us to be willing to come to you, to not stand on the outside looking in, to not wallow in our shame and our sin or in our pride, but simply say, yes, Lord Jesus, I want to be part of your renewed, renewed and renewing creation. I want to live my life in this world a truly human way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.